it's okay not to know everything. Things will unfold as long as you kind of keep your eyes open, keep on making smart decisions that make sense. You'll get there. Dr. Aisha Pandor and Alan Ribbick are co-founders in SweepSouth, an extremely successful local tech startup that connects its users with cleaners, gardeners, and outdoor workers in a marketplace-type environment. It's an extremely popular app, one that I am a huge fan of. It's one that we use here at home. And in this podcast, I talk to her about her journey to entrepreneurship. We talk about the notion of social entrepreneurship and impact. We talk about the funding ecosystem in South Africa and how it is different or similar to San Francisco. We talk a little bit about this moment in time and where resilience comes from and some of her experiences and learnings as she sought to continue to expand her business, build some sustainability into it, and ultimately have an impact on thousands of lives, millions of lives. I absolutely love this discussion with Aisha. She's an absolute superstar. She's intimidatingly smart. And hers is just a really wonderful story. And I trust you'll enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Here's Aisha. Okay, Aisha, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to chat to me today. This is a, a season that's all about social entrepreneurship. And I've been talking to a couple of different people about what that actually means to them, right? Because it's one of those words that I guess you can ascribe meaning to and how we use words and uh, is really important, especially in the world we live in today. Um, I'm curious, how do you think about the phrase social entrepreneurship or social entrepreneur? And is it something you identify with? Mike, firstly, thanks. Thanks for having me. Great to be chatting to you. And then around social entrepreneurship, I mean, it's it's something that I, I definitely hadn't set out to do with building sweep south i think you know for me the the concept of entrepreneurship or or social entrepreneurship or social positive social impact has always kind of been baked into what you should be doing as a Mm. sustainable business anyways and i've always kind of looked down on businesses that have the kind of brand where it's obvious that they don't really care about people or their impact on, you know, other people or the environment. And, mm. you know, that you have the sense that they're kind of running with whoever is running them just having blinkers and it's just, you know, kind of profit only. You know, the, the concept of social entrepreneurship for me is just that positive impact, net positive gain, you being around being for the better should really just be baked into your model and your mission and and what drives you as a as a business. And I think, you know, especially during this time, I just think that there's a lot more kind of outwards pressure for that to be the case. But um, yeah. but certainly in, you know, from my point of view, I could never run a business where I didn't feel like a big part of it was that people's lives are, are, are better by virtue of us being around. Yeah, where you couldn't sleep at night because you didn't have a clear conscience. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so. And I mean, this this is a position that I hear a lot of people talking about is we didn't necessarily set out with that in mind. That wasn't sort of the, the foremost objective, but it's crystallized over time. And, and it's become more clear as the business has evolved and as you've expanded and as you've had more influence over more lives. Is, is that the case for you? Have you felt like purpose has kind of emerged almost like a statue out of a piece of marble, you know? Mm-hmm. And if so, do you kind of articulate and talk about that a lot? I think it's become more explicit. I think when we started to build Sweep South, it was 
more just this, you know, implicit idea of, hey, let's build technology that's pretty cool and that addresses some issues that we've seen. But the more we've dealt with people, you know, which I think is also just so important to business, whatever it is that you do is to take things back to to people. And as we've dealt more with people, whether it's our customers or people who are finding work through our platform, I think it's surfaced the mission and the kind of positive social impact of what we're doing as something that's a lot more explicit. And I also think that once we've started to speak to, I mean, for me, a big thing was speaking to uh, people who we interviewed. And across mm. the board, every single person who we, we spoke to, is, is certainly the best people, you know, the ones who we were like, we really need to bring this person on board. They spoke about being motivated by the positive elements of what we do on society. And I think that then started to kind of draw our attention to, hey, you know, we should really make sure that even though it might be something that's internal and kind of in our heads and in our hearts, let's let's really try and let's put words to this. Like, let's, you know, let's talk about what our mission is. Let's talk about what our values are. Let's make it something that, you know, the, the rest of the company kind of understands and is put down in words and is, you know, put into a handbook and a manifesto. But yeah. certainly, like, it was there when we when we started. And I think it's it's difficult to run a business without it being like somewhere at least you know that like that why having a a positive or being about positive impact like if you don't have that why somewhere if it doesn't exist I think it it can be quite difficult to kind of dredge it up from nowhere yeah it's something that I spoke to Richard Mulholland about a little bit is that every business has values every business Mm. has a purpose not all of those purposes and values are magnanimous right and um the degree to which you are honest with yourself about what those are and how explicit you are about them is, you know, the moment you're trying to pretend something you're not, that cascades down into customer experience and, yeah. and employee experience. And that's where it goes really wrong. And you know, on, on that point, I'm, I'm curious to hear from you because I, you know, I spend a lot of time talking about and studying and to a degree interacting with businesses that are, are, are in the same league as you, platform businesses that are doing some really innovative, really interesting stuff with technology, connecting customers to needs in ways that were unimaginable before, right? Like indistinguishable from magic. And I want to ask, because there's this interesting dynamic in companies like Uber and Airbnb around the tension between who your customer really is. Yeah. I know at Airbnb, there's a big focus on the host is the customer, and the person that they accommodate is is the means to an end, right? So whereas Uber would consider the rider, the customer, and the driver more the product, how do you sort of think about that dynamic, and and has it changed at all during your Sweep South journey? Yeah, it's something that we speak about a lot. And, Mm. you know, I don't think that you can say that it's it's one or the other. I think, you know, we – we the, the reason why I, I love the idea of platforms and, and marketplace businesses is that ideally you should create technology that is um, leading to a win-win on both sides. And I think yes. when you think about, you know, who the customer is and you kind of forced to pick a side, it implies that someone's going to be losing, you know, that, that it's someone over someone else. So the way that we've always thought about things at Sweep South is that, you know, we've got two sides of a marketplace. They ideally want the same thing. You know, you you want to create a positive experience for both sides, but how that happens is done in, in different ways. And so in doing that, you're not going, well, you know, our customers, as a silly example, want 
you know, lower prices and, you know, those are our paying customers. So that's what's going to happen. Whenever we make a decision, we're always thinking about the balance between what this means for, you know, the one side, what it means for the other side, and then how we try and find that balance. And it's not always going to be a perfect kind of 50-50, but but we certainly then don't make decisions where we go, oh, this tips things, you know, too much against our sweep stars or against our customers. Mm, yeah, it's a difficult tension to manage, I'm sure, because there are times where you must feel like you're erring on on one side of that spectrum. Or, but I, I guess fundamentally having that win-win barometer, you know, in the back of your mind must make a huge difference to the way you make decisions and how deliberate you are about new feature sets or new experiences yeah. or whatever yeah, it might very be. much yeah. so. But I also think that it's part of the complexity of just running a business anyways. Sure. There's a similar conversation about who is your kind of customer or primary stakeholder when you're running a business. Is it, you know, mm. your customer? Is it your employees? Is it your shareholders? And yeah. again, similarly, I think to choose any one of those is, you know, creating this false impression that, you know, you can tip the scale too far towards any one direction and, you know, everyone else is going to be happy. So um, yeah. I prefer to kind of just think about it as, you know, realistically, pragmatically, like you've got, you know, a couple of different sides to try and balance and, you know, that's part of the complexity of running a successful business. And that's why not everyone is, is able to do it. But, you know, you've, you've got to kind of keep those things top of mind continuously when you're making decisions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it strikes me, Aisha, in my conversations with entrepreneurs and potential entrepreneurs, and I'm sure you have these on a, on a weekly and probably daily basis as well. Everybody has a good idea for a platform business. Everybody mm, has a yeah. good idea place business and, and ideas are <laughs> a dime a dozen but the execution part is really tough and yeah. when it comes to execution in in a business like yours it seems the the big barrier the thing that trips most people up is this question of critical mass even mm. more so than the technology itself right the yeah. technology is in some in some respects commodified but this how do you get the community that makes that technology powerful and effective? That's the the, yeah. the the big challenge. Yours is one of the few services that was, you know, I'm, I, I move in tech circles and I move in digital circles. So generally things will be introduced to me through that network. Yours is a product that was introduced to me through somebody in my social circle that basically is on the realm of technological advancement where they still print their emails and put it in a filofax. So <laughs> you clearly got really great critical mass uh, in, 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 a, in the non-technical or non-digital early adopter space really quickly. And that speaks to, I guess, the intrinsic value of your offering and the utility of the offering. How did you do that? What was your secret? And what advice would you give other people that are trying to get over that speed bump? I think, you know, part of it comes from how the idea originated. And in our situation, it was, you know, we've got this problem. It's frustrating for us. And through speaking to other people, we understand that it's probably a challenge that a lot of young working professionals like us have. So needing temporary or long-term help at home. And, and then on the other side that, you know, with people who are, who are doing the work, we knew that there were such high unemployment levels amongst you know, domestic workers and people who would work on our platform, that yeah. if you're able to make access to work easy or easier, much easier than it has been, it kind of becomes a no-brainer for people to want to join the platform. 
So I think it's kind mm. of like experiencing the problem yourself. It's really difficult to come up with a an idea and say, you know, I I just think this is a good idea because I think it's a good idea, but it's, you know, not necessarily something that you've experienced yourself and then kind of build a business off of that. It can be done, of course, but but I think, you know, often the best ideas and the ones that kind of feel most natural in their progression from like, I get that this might be an issue to I actually understand how to try and build it in a way that's going to solve the problem uh, comes from mm. people having personal experience. Yeah. And I think then you can start because then you go, okay, you know, the question about critical mass. Well, you know, how do I address that? On which side do I address that first? Okay, well, I understand that, you know, on the one side, this is probably where, you know, most of the supplier is going to be. Okay, well, then let's start with trying to build a solution for that side. And then how do we start to get the other side of the platform working a lot better? Yeah. Whereas, yeah, if it's something that's just an, an idea and, a, you know, like whimsical thought, um, you don't always do that kind of deep thinking about how to to start attacking the problem. You know, this whole point around solve a problem for yourself and you'll probably find uh, that you'll solve a problem for a lot of other people is is extremely pertinent and seems to run as a golden thread through so many of the ideas that do evolve into significant scalable platform businesses. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of season one. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or the One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. I want to ask a question around focus because you've created a, a platform that I guess could be applied, the same technology, the same recipe, if you like, could be applied mm-hmm. to a number of other applications. Has it been tempting to yeah. diversify? And if it has been, how have you maintained focus and how do you, how do you manage your time around that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's been tough. And again, a question that we've discussed a lot internally, both between myself and, and Alan, my, my husband and co-founder, and then as the team's grown. We've always tried to uh, keep the bias towards focused and simple and mm. have rather said, you know, if you literally cannot justify why not you would bring a, a new service onto the platform, then, you know, then it's something that we will then begin to investigate. But I think, you know, the thing with focus is that Ideally, building a, a business and, you know, it's we're a tech business. So, you know, it implies that it needs to be high growth. You know, we're going for scale. So unless you're starting to really chip into that scale and those big numbers, losing focus can be incredibly difficult. And it has lots of knock on effects yeah. from, you know, costs and team resources to, you know, probably the most important resource, which is kind of your time and attention. Um, and how that gets diverted. So our view has always been, you know, un- until you're really feeling like this machine with your your core focus is running to a point where, you know, your acquisition costs are low, you know, the word of mouth is just kind of running almost organically. And, you know, you know that this is almost marketing itself. Um, until mm. you get to that point, there shouldn't be too much attention that's paid to, you know, what else can we what else can we provide to to customers? How else can we, how can we diversify? You know, that said, we have recently got into a point where we've looked at what are some of the other services 
that that we can provide. And and again, that was by virtue of us going, okay, you know, the kind of operational machine is ticking while mm. um, you know customer acquisition costs are, are dropping. People who do use the service are having an amazing time. We don't. It, it's going to take a lot more effort to make this experience a lot better for people. You know, they're happy, and we're not going to necessarily put in the kind of you know, the additional 80% of attention to get that, you know, extra couple of percentage up in experience. So, you know, sure. what what else do people want? And and a lot of this has also been driven by by customers who, you know, from probably five years ago, the first or second year into operating, were starting to go, please, can you offer this other service? Please, can you offer that? And we've only kind of in the last six months or so felt like it was it was time like we you know like we had all the other things going that dynamic around focus and and specifically around balancing focus and scale you know rather doing one thing extremely well rather than many things at a mediocre level yes yeah. is, is a challenge that i think all of us face even if we're not conscious of it yeah this day and age yeah. focus is just so difficult to maintain and you know it's so one of one of the sayings that i love around that is um so steve jobs talked about it and he's obviously you know he's just in terms of kind of product design is like you know I don't think you can get a better thinker but um, just around mm. simplicity and focus and, and the way he phrased it is something that I often think about when making decisions is and I'm completely paraphrasing and probably messing this up but it's not the opportunities that don't make sense or that seem like they're going to divert your attention that you should say no to those ones are the easy ones to say no to the ones that are difficult mm. to say no to are the ones that seem like a no-brainer it seems like it's going to be easy to do it. It's like, why Why wouldn't you say yes? And he said, by default, he still says no to the vast majority of those opportunities. So that's the way that I've tried to get my team to to think about focus and, and new opportunities, because it becomes harder. The further along you get, the better known you are. Mm. You know, the more people are interested in your success, the more opportunities you get. And they all seem amazing. But again, yeah, there are you know, lots of pitfalls that you that you could fall into without necessarily seeing them from the get-go. Yeah. Sometimes the reason that things work or don't work isn't as obvious as we'd like them to be. And I guess yeah. we, as entrepreneurs can often take more credit than we probably should yes. for some of the outcomes <laughs> that are. We start believing that we have this kind of Midas touch. Of, that's, I mean, that, that kind of discipline is so tough. So I admire that. I'm sure that's come through some some tough lessons and tough learnings, and I'm definitely going to ask you about those. <laughs> but before we get there, your journey to entrepreneurship was was maybe a little different to most. And as I understand, you, you know, most of us started businesses because we couldn't get proper jobs or dropped out <laughs> of university. But you, you were quite a, a contrary journey where you absolutely blitzed through university. You got your PhD, I think, in 2012, if I'm right, and yeah. from you. Uh, UCT, you did the human genetics. Is that correct? Yes, that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, and then did a business diploma at the same time, which is just ridiculously intimidating. So I don't know what <laughs> what you were on. But, uh, yeah, so um, very intimidating for the rest of us. But but that's a that's a slightly unconventional journey to entrepreneurship because I think you know the world of of academics and and of hmm. scientific endeavor are often quite far and sometimes even opposed to some of the ideals that entrepreneurs hold dear and. And true, have you have you felt like you had to adapt dramatically, or were you kind of an entrepreneur in the closet all along? What was you know sort of what is your feeling being around around that journey? I would say neither. I suppose like I definitely I didn't I didn't think of entrepreneurship ever as as a career option. 
um, sure. you know, while I was while I was a student and and even after or, yeah kind of towards the end of my PhD when I was doing business the aim even then wasn't really to be an entrepreneur I was thinking about it but I was kind of more drawn to business mm. and I think there's some things that have felt kind of natural to me now starting my own business. I wouldn't say I've had issues with authority, but I've always questioned a lot. And it got me into trouble quite a bit when I was young. You know, and people thought that I was cheeky <laughs> um, because I'd, I'd I'd ask questions and I'd question authority. And if things, weren't, if things weren't logical, I just, <laughs> I would just, you know, I'd, I I remember, so my, my, my family is Muslim and and I remember at, at a religious school just questioning things which didn't make logical sense to me and, and getting in trouble mm. because, you know, you weren't meant to question those things. You were meant to just have faith, um, which just so didn't sit well with me at all. And I think also the idea of of a bit more autonomy over your time, which I struggled with as a student and as, a, as an employee. Sure. So those things have really just felt natural, you know, as an entrepreneur, but there were things that felt very unnatural to me. I think, you know, coming out of studying for so long, studying for 10 years, the mm. the initial lack of structure I, I, I struggled with. I'm naturally introverted. I, I struggled a lot with interviewing people, speaking to investors was horrific in the, in the early mm. days. I, I would say so-so, but I think Something that gave me comfort was the idea also that you don't, I mean, I don't really think you have, like, you're a natural entrepreneur, you're not a natural entrepreneur as like a, a, like a profile of person. Sure. I definitely think it works for some people and doesn't work for other people. But I think trying to kind of like delineate that, it becomes a bit more difficult. Yeah, but I, you know, I just, I knew that I think research wasn't for me. I'm, I'm impatient. You know, the kind of academic world is built a lot on hierarchy. That didn't work for me. I worked as a management consultant after studying that. That didn't work for me. Oh, wow. uh, yeah. Okay, yeah. So very structured, you know, time is watched very closely, that sort of thing. So although I'm incredibly yeah. grateful for the experiences that I had, had and I think that they played a, a big part in whatever success we've had so far with Sweep South. Mm. I, I just, entrepreneurship has been the only thing that has kind of answered the way that I want to try and build my lifestyle and the sort of mm. impact that I want to try and have. Amazing. As the business has evolved, you, you've spoken about some of those uncomfortable experiences early on, things that felt less natural. Who have you sort of taken inspiration from Who's been a big influence on your entrepreneurship journey and, and how important have those people been to the success of, you know, yourself, Ellen and the business today? I have so I mean, I draw inspiration from so many people. I, I think one of the things that I, I don't think I did well or I would have done better in hindsight is have more kind of formalized mentors and mentor relationships. I didn't do that because I think mistakenly tried to look in the tech space for people who had had a similar journey to me and who mm. looked like me, you know, so can I look for a black woman who's a mom in the tech space to be my mentor? And didn't, you know, at, at the time there wasn't really anyone, especially not in South Africa. And so kind of thought, okay, well, you know, just leave it. But, but I think in not having a person or, you know, or a small group of people, I've definitely just, looked quite wide for inspiration and have reached out to people 
and, you know, had conversations. And I believe that like with the world being so connected and, and you actually having access to so many people, mm. you can have, you know, hundreds potentially of mentors, which works well because in a given situation. So when I've got a, an issue with HR, let's say I want to chat to someone who is an HR expert or is known for being someone who is passionate about people and understands people well. If I'm trying to think about strategy and I'm stuck, I want to speak about to someone who's, you know, gone through that and who's really yeah. deep in that space. And so there have been people who I've spoken to a lot during our journey. Um, the guys at, at Yoko have just been amazing. All of the, the founders mm-hmm. at Yoko, Bradley Carl, Lungi, Katlejo, Rapelang Rabana, mm-hmm. who, who was a woman who in the very early days in the tech space had, had started Diego with, yeah. with Lungi from Yoko, been a, a big inspiration. I look at a lot of, you know, international founders as well. I think just around kind of people and authentic leadership. Brian Chesky, someone who's a great example. Yeah. So just, you know, they, it, it really just depends on what it is that I'm, that I'm looking for at the time. Mm-hmm. Almost like an informal advisory board, sort of a network of people that you can lean on for the for the appropriate input at the right time. A hundred percent. Yeah. And people have been, I mean, I, the beautiful thing I think about, I think it's the tech industry, but I think just the world is becoming a lot more like this, is that if you, if you approach someone and, you know, you've got a, a specific ask and you are respectful about their time, people are willing to help and to hear you out, which I just think has been amazing. That's great to hear. You would have experienced, I'm sure, firsthand and then also from a distance, kind of outside the bubble, the the ecosystem of tech startups in Silicon Valley. And I'm sure you would have watched similar businesses or platform businesses that have been through a journey of, you know, kind of ideation and funding and mm. going through the various rounds and the highs and lows, the roller coasters, um, gaining that critical mass. How different do you think your experience as founders has been being based here with a predominantly different set of investors, I guess, mm. to what many of those kind of traditional Silicon Valley or East Coast VCs exude in terms of values and behavior? Do you think you're having the same experience or do you think you're having a very different experience here in South Africa? I mean, I found that it's that it's quite different. Um, so we'd spent some time in, in um, San Francisco in 2015 with Sweep South, and we've gone back every year or two. Um, and yeah. we were part of the, you know, the 500 Startups Accelerator program. So um, mm. we're also exposed to other startups at a, at a similar stage. I think, you know, some of the, the similarities, and I think where we drew a lot of comfort was, was just in thinking of ourselves as a as a founder pair, as our team that was quite small at the time and realizing that there wasn't this kind of big gap between ourselves and and San Francisco-based entrepreneurs. Because I think that was something that kind of was on my mind a lot. And, you know, and, and I remember when we started Sweep South in the, in the first weeks, watching a lot of videos of pitches from Y Combinator and 500 Startups uh, demo days and just thinking, how would I ever, ever be able to just be as confident and succinct as these entrepreneurs. And so it was kind of something that just played on my mind was, you know, if you're not in that ecosystem and just kind of absorbing by osmosis, like, you know, that startup vibe and atmosphere, you know, can you ever be as good as a, as a founder? 
Um, and so I think mm. what was encouraging was just seeing that, you know, the, the quality of us as a pair and, and all of the other international businesses that were there at the time is just as good as the guys who, you know, are born and bred in, in San Francisco. What I did see, though, was that by virtue of there being a lot more funding available there, uh, businesses could take a lot more risks. Yeah. And I think that's definitely impacted us and our strategy. And I think in good and bad ways, I think, you know, on a positive note, it's meant that we've really considered decisions that we've made before deciding to go ahead. Mm. But, you know, I think there's also something to be said for for taking risks every now and then because they open up opportunities. And so I think sure. sometimes we've been quite conservative where, you know, maybe we should have just risked a little bit. And, you know, thought about how to do something differently, how to try and appeal to a different to your target market, how to look at, you know, an adjacent business model. So that's that's been quite tough. And then I think another thing around kind of the access to funding and I think the, the limited market in South Africa is that entrepreneurs have to be more conservative because investors are more conservative. And, you know, so to yeah. say to someone, you know, we're going to be a unicorn in three years, like they're not going to believe you. You're going to sound crazy. You know, you've, you're, you're dealing also with a, an investor base, I think, that also puts sometimes necessary, sometimes restrictive limits to how quickly you're going to grow, you know, how big realistically you think the business is, is going to get. And I suppose all of the things that come with that. I wanted to ask quickly about that. You know, if you imagine going back to Silicon Valley in, in 2015 and bumping into yourself, uh, five years ago, would Asia of today give that person <laughs> any advice? Would you tell her to do something differently? Would you, you'd probably warn her about 2020 to be fair, but uh, <laughs> apart from that, <laughs> what would you, what would you tell her or would you just leave her be and, and let her do her own thing? I mean, I think the confidence piece is something that I, I probably would, would go back and kind of give myself a little pep talk about. I think, you know, I, I think we went in there, especially myself. I think Alan, Alan, my co-founder, is, is more confident and I suppose extroverted than than I am. But you know, I would have I would have gone there, I suppose, with a little bit more confidence. I think, you know, we approached a few investors, I remember at the time, and it was kind of like almost not apologetic, but kind of, you know, playing very small. Um, where I feel like we probably should have played big. And and some of that was driven by, unfortunately, at the time when we when we went over there a business called Homejoy, which had a similar model to ours, had mm. raised, I think they'd raised, uh, they just raised a, a almost $40 million round and yeah. about 18 months later had had folded. And it was kind mm. of a big story at the time. And so, you know, again, I also think that we were probably influenced by that and, you know, and, and were very cautious about how we were going to tell our story and how our market was different to theirs and we were different to that model. And I probably would have placed less emphasis on that and be, being less psychologically impacted by all of that. I think mm. another thing that I felt then that I only recognized later down the line when Silicon Valley started to have the, the kind of Me Too movement was yeah. I, I felt the pressure of being a black female founder and being in this space yeah. that just felt very unlike me, you know, and and, and foreign. And yeah. and it, it felt intimidating to, you know, just the, the kind of broader ecosystem, you know, being being very kind of assertive and very kind of male male dominated. And although the South African uh, tech ecosystem is 
also, you know, not not nearly as diverse as it should be. It felt different in in Silicon mm. Valley. It it felt more. It felt a bit more aggressive and a little bit less welcoming at the time. It's interesting, especially when you consider Silicon Valley's very liberal roots, right? That it, you would have expected it would be more diverse and certainly more accepting of uh, an inclusive environment and an inclusive way to produce solutions, right? Like surely. The dissenting voice, surely other perspectives will show us better ways to create products for the world, because that's the ambition, right? Everybody in Silicon Valley wants to, in inverted commas, change the world, uh, I mean, yeah. ideally by changing their own pockets, but uh, yeah. it isn't always yeah. reflected in practice. Uh, we had a similar experience as a, you know, as a delegation of entrepreneurs where we you know, are hoping to learn lessons about our context and realizing that there, in many ways, were advantages to not being exposed to that yeah. ecosystem because there's a there's a kind of resilience and you know when, when failure is not an option I mean I think you alluded to this already when you were talking about sort of a slight aversion to risk in some cases mm-hmm. but I think in in many ways it also does force us to build more robust businesses yeah. and they're businesses that might not scale to 30 million customers in two years but that's okay because they're still great businesses <laughs> um, yeah. and they probably will be around in 10 years time you know yeah. how do you think about growth you you spoke about it earlier on as a you know kind of a business that scales you spoke about this unicorn moniker that you know kind of gets thrown around how, how big is big enough I mean it's a tough one to to answer I think what's what's more important for me is building a sustainable business. I think, you know, where we want to get to with Sweep South is being able to provide job opportunities for for millions of people so that, you know, Sweep stars domestic workers. But um, I think when we think about growth, and this has shifted a bit as well, is that it's it's not about, you know, we want to become a unicorn or, you know, whatever the case, you know, we want to raise this much. It's it's about how do you build a sustainable business that, you know, in I, I would hate for in in ten years sweep south to just be something that is either not around or has just kind of disappeared and all of that work and all of that impact that you tried to create is has been lost. So, you know, growth mm-hmm. to me is I'd much rather create a business that is stable and sustainable and that is growing fifty percent year on year but over a long period of time, then having some of these like amazing international success stories, which then, you know, kind of crash and burn and were built on smoke and mirrors anyways, without any thoughts towards sustainability. And and I think part of this is also driven by this idea that to be investable, you know, you've got to be the fastest growing business who's raising the most you know, and this kind of obsession with like, how quickly are you growing? How much have you raised during this round? We've definitely taken a step back from that kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. I, I imagine for so many, well, for myself, but for so many aspiring and ambitious entrepreneurs, not just in South Africa, but I imagine all across this continent, you guys are a a real sort of beacon of hope and, a, and an aspirational example of, of what can be achieved with a lot of perseverance and, you know, kind of the right application. And, and as we've mentioned earlier on, just relentless execution. But I'm sure like everybody else, it's, it's been just as hard <laughs> and just yeah. as tough. And I'm sure it's been a, as much of a roller coaster as it is for anyone. What would be your sort of key words of advice to entrepreneurs that are 
trying to navigate some of the unpredictability of this moment in time, maybe entrepreneurs that are looking to create value or looking to experiment in a, you know, kind of in building new services or solutions coming out of lockdown and out of, because I think that this is an interesting time for new opportunities. Mm -hmm. But what, what, would you, what would you say to people who are listening to the show now that are just kind of just a, a centimeter away from taking that step? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot, you know, I think, sure. I think it would be to, to look for opportunities that are aligned with both your skill sets um, and your experience and also your, your own purpose. You know, so look, look for things that, that you're good at, where you have a, a, an uncompetitive advantage, where you know that, you know, you can and are interested in doing this better than anyone else. But also those things have to be aligned with what's important to you long term. Mm. It would also be to understand that it's okay if it feels difficult and and it feels like it's an uphill battle because it's felt like that so often for us. Mm. You know, when you zoom in, it feels like that. And then you kind of zoom out and 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 you're like, well, you know, we were we'd made a lot of progress and a lot of traction during that time. But when you're in it, it often and and this is something that I was struck by is that it just it feels hard so much of the time which is why it's important for it to be really aligned with your purpose and your mission because if it's not then it just it doesn't feel worth it so it's okay if it feels hard and especially now if you don't have everything kind of worked out I think one of the things that that I, I also struggled with in the early days was I never felt as confident as other founders and CEOs seemed and mm. I felt like a lot of the time I, I don't have all the answers and I felt okay with saying that to, to my team and saying that to myself. Mm. It's okay not to know everything. Things will unfold as long as you kind of keep your eyes open, keep on making smart decisions that make sense, you'll get there. And then I think also just the power of networks and that kind of, you know, for me, it's been that, that informal advisory board and those people that I go to and, and ask for advice. And I've done a lot of that over the last few months, but, mm. you know, support is available. There's no reason to suffer alone. No one who's built a business, despite how some people might want to make it seem as if, you know, they are the person who is responsible for X business's success. No one does it alone. Uh, no one does it without getting really good advice from, you know, mentors, role models, boards, whatever the case is. So don't be under the illusion that you have to do it without support because there's a lot of support available and, and, and a lot of people who who are positive and and um, and have an optimistic outlook and 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 want to see you be successful. Aisha, you've been so generous with your wisdom and experience. I really can't wait to have a coffee when the world is finished ending somewhere <laughs> down at an coffee in Cape Town. And uh, I just really want to thank you for your time. And I want to wish you the very best for the next few months. And obviously for the immediate and extended, hopefully long future of Sweep South and your team and the people whose lives you impact. Uh, thank you so much for the work you do. Thanks, Mike. It's, it's my pleasure. And thank you for also having these conversations. I think more than ever, just really important to, to hear a wide range of perspectives just knowing that, that, that you're not alone. So thank you. It really is my pleasure. Thanks, Asia. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. 
I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man slash person is king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.